As we mentioned a few minutes ago, we've started a new series last week in which in six weeks we're seeking to cover the dominant story of the whole Bible. The Bible is not a series of disconnected events. It's ultimately an intricately woven story meant to send one dominant message. There's um, a lot of helpful books out that help us to understand that about the Bible and see that. Uh, One of the books we've taught several times in connection classes here uh, is called God's Big Picture, and it helps to trace that story line through the Bible that we're seeking to share over the next six weeks. If you are interested in this, I'd love it to give it to someone who would like to read it. Anybody want this? Come on. Sorry, Cicely. You snooze, you lose. Yeah. Sandra. She's a graduate student. She does not have enough reading, I guess. Um, Also, this week, we are going to be looking at the most famous passage on fruit in the whole Bible. So, of course, we should give away some fruit snacks. Who would like... Some fruit snacks. Come on, Abiola. Why is there so many more hands for fruit snacks than scripture? You ready? Oh, that was amazing. All right. If you would turn with me in your Bible to Genesis 3. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one somewhere around you in one of the chairs in front of you. And uh, you are free, of course, to take that if you don't have a copy of your scriptures. Uh, Last week, we left humanity in Eden. The Garden of Eden was a real place, and the name Eden means delight. And that was symbolic of what existed in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were the first human beings created by God. He placed them there. And this first couple was told to simply be fruitful and multiply. In a sense, it's as though God put them there and said, expand Eden now through your work to the whole world. And in doing that, they would image God. Adam and Eve were created by God morally innocent. So they knew no guilt or shame. And as we talked about last week in Genesis 2, it says that they were, they were naked. So those of us in junior high, I just think that's the most amazing thing ever. That was my favorite passage at that age. But their nakedness was meant to symbolize something. It symbolized their, their moral innocence, their, their purity before God. So Adam and Eve had each other without discord or conflict. That means, of course, that Eve liked football and Adam enjoyed Hobby Lobby. They met with God every day. That's ultimately what made Eden a place of delight, was there was no disconnect between the creator and the creation. They enjoyed each other. They had relationship. The scriptures tell us that in God's presence is fullness of joy. That's what made Eden a place of delight. God was there with them. I wonder, friend, if you know God like that. I wonder if that's how you think of God. Is God an angry tyrant to you? Is God an absent and abusive man like your earthly father? Is God quiet except when you disobey him? 
Is he disinterested in your life? Or is he the very epitome of joy and delight? Ultimately, the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. It's your conception of God. That drives everything in your life. One of the reasons we struggle to see God as he is and correspondingly struggle with fear is because we don't understand who he really is. We don't see him as he actually exists. And so our goal in this series of messages is to hold up what the Bible says about God in his work in order that we would love him and trust him. So I hope as we're walking through this together that you'll be praying that for yourself and for your friends around you. So the creator God put the creatures, Adam and Eve, in a perfect place with perfect relationships in his perfect creation that they might love and trust him and enjoy each other and image God. God would lovingly rule over them and they would lovingly rule over creation. That's the design of what God made. That's what's hardwired into the creation order itself. Now today we come to the second scene in the story, Genesis 3. This is what theologians typically call the fall. Now this isn't the kind of fall I took and ended up in a cast. It is something different. It doesn't take a PhD in philosophy or theology or a doctorate in medicine or law to become convinced that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Have you felt that this week? Have you come face to face with a circumstance in which you knew experientially this is not right? It wasn't supposed to work like this. Eden is gone. Innocence is lost. Relationship with God has been severed. Turn on the news, read a headline, join a church, go to school, build a friendship. Everywhere we turn, what we find is brokenness, fallenness, if you will. So today we want to ask the question, why? Why is it like this? Why is the world a mixture of moments where sunlight breaks through and we find a little bit of Eden, and then a lot of moments where things are undeniably broken? Why is it that way? What happened to Eden? What happened to us? Before we can go there, we ought to look back real quickly at a couple of verses in Genesis 2. So look at Genesis 2.15. This will give us a backdrop to hang the event on we'll talk about today. Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You shall surely eat... Of every tree of the garden. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Adam and Eve were given everything, everything. They just had one prohibition don't eat from that particular tree. Now, this brings us to Genesis 3, and Oasis, one of our High school students is going to come read the passage for us. So Oasis, come on up. This is Genesis 3, 1 through 21. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be, desi- to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Thanks. Would you thank her for reading? There's enough material there to cover months of Sunday mornings together. There's a lot. But the nature of um, the way we're trying to see the whole scriptures requires us today just to take the high point, the, the dominant idea of the passage, which is pretty clear. It's that what's wrong with the world is humanity rebelled against God. God gave us one thing we were supposed to not do, and thousands of things we were supposed to do. And we chose the one. We fell from innocence, right standing with the Creator in harmony with each other. So to help us understand what's going on here, we'll take four movements, if you will, through this passage. Uh, One is the temptation that they faced. Two is the rebellion that they chose. Three is the results or consequences that came as a result. And then finally, hope. So we'll just walk through those together this morning. So first, temptation. When, when Satan came to Adam and Eve to tempt them to disobey God, he did it subversively and brilliantly. If you'll look carefully at verse 1, it says, He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Satan led not with direct statement, but with a question. And the question had a particular design. It was designed to get Eve and Adam to disbelieve God, to doubt God. 
Satan tossed seeds of doubt that would quickly grow into weeds of rebellion. And my friends, Satan still does that today. He continues to cast seeds of doubt. Did God really say? That's the way it happens. His aim is to encourage us to believe that we're people designed to be in charge, that we're people who have the capacity to be creators, not creation, that we have the right to decide what we'll do for ourselves. D.A. Carson said that Satan came smuggling in the assumption that we have the ability, even the right, to stand in judgment of what God has said. Do you hear that in his temptation? Did God really say? And then what he said isn't really what God said. But the seeds of doubt were planted. The temptation, of course, was from, for Adam and Eve to believe that God wasn't really good. God put that tree in the garden because he's a cosmic killjoy. God put that fruit there because he's mean. He enjoys me having a hard life. He's not a good God. He's power hungry, abusive, and grumpy. His aim is to limit my pleasure. He gets his jollies off me seeing something I can't have. He is the eternal party pooper. God's not good. He doesn't care. That's what Satan was getting at. And it worked. And that's the exact same way, friends, today that we face temptation. It's not as though Satan comes and says, Verily, verily, listen to me. God is a liar. Instead, it comes in much more subversive, tempting thoughts. Like, if God were really, really good, if the Bible were true, then that would never have happened to me. If God were really good, then he would give me what I want. You've worked hard for that. You deserve it. Of course you ought to have her. Yes, that will make you feel like you've arrived. It, it comes more subtly. But that's the temptation. Second, for Adam and Eve came willful rebellion. Adam and Eve's decision to reject God's good word and his good rule over their lives was an act of treason. It was kicking God off his throne. It was the de-godding of God, if you will. Remember, up till this moment, humanity had never done, thought, or felt anything evil. You haven't made it even that far today. But now, Adam and Eve would gain the knowledge of good and evil. Not in a, an academic, theoretical kind of way, but from the inside out. Adam and Eve would know good and evil by becoming evil. Our first parents chose to eat that forbidden fruit, believing it would make them like God, as Satan promised. But instead, it gave them the experience of moving from being morally good to becoming evil. They foolishly thought that they could choose good and evil if they saw them and then could pick whichever one they wanted. But as it turns out, to disobey God is to forfeit delight. It's to give up guiltlessness. 
It's to reject real joy and seek it in substitutes that don't last. And in that moment, humanity fell apart. That is the answer to what's wrong with the world. Around the start of the last century, the Times in London asked several prominent writers this question. What's wrong with the world? That's an important question. One people have been asking a long, long, long time. One particularly well-known author replied, Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. He's right. Adam and Eve's failure is our failure. We share it. It's not just that they chose to disbelieve and disobey God. We too have chosen the same. Our drive for autonomy, our arrogant claim to know right from wrong, our tendency to think of ourselves first, our thought, I know better than you, God. My dear friends, that's what's wrong with the world. Adam and Eve fell, and we too have fallen. Now let's look at the results and the consequences. The results and consequences of our rebellion are awful We live with them every single day. Look again at verse 7 with me, if you would. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And here's maybe the most tragic moment in the whole story. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. When we get the thing that we think we most want, that will finally give us what we need, the result of that is momentary pleasure, but then a lasting sense of brokenness, of fallenness. And so what we do as a result of that is we seek to cover up our guilt and shame. And then when a, a Christian or a worship environment or the scriptures are heard by us, our tendency is to want to cover ourselves, to hide from God because we know we're guilty. Fear, shame, guilt, anger, brokenness, loneliness, anxiety, people-pleasing, disease, greed, alcoholism, violent men, seductive women, workaholics, gossip, death, Need I go on? Everything negative we ever experience is a result of the fall. When the creatures reject the creator, everything falls apart. It's like getting something from Ikea without the directions. It's broken. It's not going to work. But the greatest consequence of sin is not those momentary effects that we feel. The greatest consequence of sin is the disconnection of relationship with God. Whenever that happens, then we also experience the loss of harmonious relationships with one another. So, have you fought with someone this week? Have you had conflict? Has there been loss? Ultimately, that fight was not really at the deepest level about you and that other person. 
It was about the sense of humanity's disconnection from God. The default experiences of humanity are now fallen. Instead of life, we know death. Instead of relationships, we know alienation and hostility. Instead of peace, we know chaos. So what's ultimately wrong with humanity is not a liberal government. It's not the common core standards of public education. It's not Lawrence Krauss over at ASU. It's not Ferguson, Missouri. What's wrong with the world is not the absence of fathers or the coming legality of homosexual marriage. What's wrong with the world is not even ultimately what's been done to us. What's wrong with the world is us. We have dead hearts. We are universally, all people everywhere, disconnected from our Creator. But we're not without hope. The story doesn't end here. If it did, we wouldn't be here today. Friends, we have hope. When humanity rejects God, there's no going back. It causes a permanent fracture in the created order. It's like a fault line that is forever there and you don't know when the ground's going to rumble and things are going to fall apart again. It causes a permanent fracture. A holy, just, and jealous God cannot simply turn the other way. But the creator, the great lover of the universe, he can choose to do the unexpected. What would be expected might be that God would say, well, I'm going to wash my hands of you. I'm done. What we might expect is the creator would say, I'm finished with you. But that's not what happened. Instead, God himself left heaven, came to earth, became one of us in order to meet us in the midst of our fallenness. There's two references to Jesus in this passage. They're veiled, if you will. But as the story goes, they become increasingly clear. And when we look at the end, and then we read Genesis 3 carefully, we find very clearly references to him. Let me show them to you. Look at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between her offspring and your offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. When God pronounced consequences of Satan, of of, uh, the fall upon Satan, that's what he said. He said, this is the result of what you've done. From the woman's offspring would come one who would crush or bruise Satan. That's a reference to Jesus. He's saying, Satan, it might appear that you win, that your temptation that worked would cause you to become the person that's now followed, but it's not going to work. You see, from this woman, eventually, down the line of descendants, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, will come another Adam, will come another human being named Jesus, and he will not choose to disobey He will bear the weight of the sin of the world. Satan, you lose. 
Now, the other one is even more amazing. Look at verse 21. This is so cool. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Isn't that awesome? Now, here's what's going on. Adam and Eve sinned. They lost their innocence. And the result of that wasn't, we've now gained the upper hand on God. We can now be our own little gods, if you will. We can choose right and wrong for ourselves. Instead, their immediate reaction was fear, guilt, shame. They had known harmony only, and now they began blaming and fighting. They recognized that they were now broken, and so they sought to cover themselves. They tried to cover their internal sense of guilt by covering their physical bodies. Now, friends, you and I do that all the time. Now, I'm not talking about when you get up in the morning and you take a shower and you get dressed and you don't leave the house naked. I'm talking about when you go to work and you try to cover up your sense of brokenness through success at work. I'm talking about when You don't have a significant other. And that becomes the consuming passion of your life. Because if I just had somebody next to me, then it would make me not feel so broken. I'm talking about when we seek through our money to sit in a car that's nice. And that leather seat makes me feel like I've arrived. So I don't feel so broken messed up and alienated from other people. It's the same thing. It's trying to cover up our sense of guilt. But God comes along and gives them this brilliant picture of grace. He made them garments from animals and he clothed them. And it's as though God is saying, my children, it's going to take a whole lot more than fig leaves to cover your guilt and shame. I'm going to give you something more substantial. This was the very first sacrifice. So from the rest of the Old Testament, we find something to us that seems old and archaic. And frankly, it is. It's very different from our experience. But for the rest of the Old Testament, God told his people, when you sin, when you fail, then you're to take an animal and you're to sacrifice that animal and I will accept its death in the place of your death. You see, God says the wages of sin is death, ultimately physical, but immediately spiritual. And so sin, you see, is treason against God. It's decreation. So whenever it happens, invariably, built into the created order, something then must die. And so for all of the Old Testament, we find this cycle. People, God initiating relationship with people, them saying yes to him, them following for a little while, then them choosing their own way, God bringing them to the point of repentance, the death of some animal, the joy in God, and then the cycle starts over again. So when God took an animal in Genesis 3 and he killed it, and he gave them their garments to cover. 
This is a picture pointing forward, of course, to Jesus. Maybe passages like John 1, 29 will make more sense to you now. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Isn't that amazing? In the very moment that Adam and Eve chose to reject God, when the perfect lover was pushed aside, in the very moment of their sin, God came and said, here's grace. You feel guilt and shame, and you should, but I'm going to cover you. I'm not going to reject you. I'm going to pursue you, and I'm going to give you grace. Friends, humanity is fallen. You and I are fallen. We are spiritually dead. We're alienated from God and each other. We deserve hell. And that's exactly what we'll get. Unless there's a garment to cover us. Unless there's something not to mask our guilt and shame, but to take it away. That's what Jesus does. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death. He rose victorious. He's alive today. And your sinfulness, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, your sinfulness can be exchanged today for Jesus' right standing with God. That is the most important, greatest news you will ever hear. That is your only hope. But it's also a sufficient hope. All you must do is turn from your sin and turn to God. That's it. It's simply to say in your own words, God, I recognize that I am fallen. I recognize that I've tried to cover myself with other things. And it hasn't worked. I believe that Jesus came and died and rose again. And I accept his death for my own. And I now want to follow him. Responding to God in that way is simply what it means to be a Christian. It means I want to affiliate not with sinfulness and fallenness and brokenness, but with God. And the only way through which I can do that is Jesus Christ. God will forgive you if that's what you'll do. You can start fresh. Salvation is offered up. It's a free gift. All you've got to do is receive it. But it will cost you everything. You don't get God's gift and then run and do whatever you want. Instead, you receive him, his covering, as your new rule, as your new good word through which you'll live. Not, of course, by somehow being good and making yourself acceptable to God, but by living out of his grace and power. So if you're here today and you've sat in this room a hundred times, or you've never been in here before, the opportunity for you is exactly the same. Would you respond to God? And if you're here today and you're already a believer, you've already made that decision to follow God, when was the last time you recognized your ongoing struggle with sin? When was the last time you realized and confessed to another brother or sister in Christ Hey, I, 
started out well, but I've got this nagging tendency to look to this other person or this other thing or this object or this experience to cover, to, to turn from God to something else that's easier, that doesn't ask so much from me. When was the last time you said to somebody else, I'm still struggling with sin? Would you let me talk to you about that? And then would you remind me of the truthfulness of the gospel? You see, Christian, the gospel isn't just for the non-Christian. It's for you too. Because the same message that saves us is the same message that sanctifies us. The same message that invites us into the people of God is the same message we must have in order to remain in the people of God. And our tendency, like it says in Galatians, is to begin by the Spirit, but then to seek to remain by our own works. And so the same gospel that saves is the same gospel that we need, Christian, every single day. So I'd ask you, brothers and sisters in the room, those of you who have, who have crossed that line in the sand, you've become followers of Christ, would you consider today, before you leave this room, going to a trusted brother or sister and saying, I've been trying to cover with this. That's all that sin is. It's looking for something other than God to satisfy our sense of brokenness. That's all it is. Would you tell them what that is and invite them to speak the gospel to you? Not so that you can get saved again, but so that you can return to the joy of your salvation. So what is the church ultimately? The collection of God's people. Well, it's God right here in the middle of the desert. Tempe, Arizona, where it's already getting hot. It's God saying, here's a little Eden. Here's a little place of delight. Not this building, but you, the people. Christian, God dwells in you. So, especially when we're together, we experience the joy together of being in His presence, of enjoying Him, of reminding each other of who He is, of living out the creation mandate that He's given us, of together rejoicing that Jesus Himself is our covering. And so we're this little glimpse to a world that's broken, that there is delight, there is joy. And it's not something you have to earn. It's something that's given to you. So let's be the people of God. Let's be a people of delight. And may that delight attract people to God. Now we've intentionally uh, ended this morning a little early, left a little bit of time. And the hope in that is that uh, non-Christian, that 
if you're at the point of not having every question you've ever had answered, but of believing what I've said today, that you would respond to God. That if you still have questions, you'd find somebody around you or come here to the front where there'll be some leaders. And you would pursue a relationship with God. And then Christians, that you would sit and ask God to show you where you've sought to cover apart from him. And then talk to somebody about that around you. And so if you would normally say, well, I can't, I have to go to lunch. Then I would say, no, you don't. Because you thought you were staying till noon. So you still have a little while. And so I'm going to ask some of the leadership team, staff, gospel community leaders, would you just stand around the room? If you would like to, go ahead and go now so people know who you are. If you'd like to go to one of these folks and say, I need help knowing how to become a Christian, or I need to, as a believer, turn from sin and be reminded of the gospel, there's nothing magical about these people. They're not somehow... Uh, more spiritual and better than you. They're simply folks who we know and have confidence in that they are on this journey and they're prepared and equipped to talk with you. There's likely another person sitting right near you who's the same way. And so I'm going to pray and then ask Brian if he would come, give us a few words before we go. And then I would encourage you to visit with somebody before you leave. So let's pray together. God, thank you that you have chosen to tell us what's wrong. That you don't leave us guessing. Why do we feel broken? Why do we long for things that we believe will fix us, and when we get them for a moment, they do, but then it doesn't work? Why do we cover? Why do we hide? Why do we blame? God, it's because Adam and Eve chose to rebel, and it's because we too have chosen to rebel. But we praise you and thank you that we're not without hope, that you're a God of love, and so that ultimately what you do to our sin is not simply rebuke us and then leave us, but you let us experience the results of rebellion against you, and then you say, here's a covering for you. Here's forgiveness offered in Christ. So, Father, I pray that if there's a single person here today, and there must be, who has not yet trusted Christ for salvation, that you would help them to believe your good word. And that whatever questions they might have or obstacles that might stand in the way, that they would seek you and someone else to help them with that today. And that they would move from fear to faith. And Father, I pray for others here who are already in Christ, who are already brothers and sisters, who have already trusted Christ. God, we don't magically, even after we've been Christians a long time, we don't magically somehow stop looking for false coverings. We still choose broken things to try and fix our ongoing sense of brokenness. Father, we want to be a church where we're real where we're honest, where there's a sense of transparency, 
where it's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to pretend that we are. I pray that my brothers and sisters would talk to one another, would both be transparent about their own struggles, but then speak the truth to each other about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before you talk to each other or to one of these leaders, Brian Murphy is going to come and give us our benediction. Brian is um, a dear brother I deeply respect. And uh, Brian has been uh, behind the scenes, being the one who's building our worship gathering. So he spends hours every week praying looking at scriptures, choosing songs, passages to read, prayers, and just wanted you to have a face and name with that work that's going on behind the scenes. Thank you, brother, for that work. Would you send us out and to each other? This benediction is taken from Colossians 2, 13 and 14 and Psalm 32, 11, and it's another reminder of the results of the fall, but yet the wonderful hope that we have in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you who were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, but who God made alive in Christ and forgave all of your sins. Go rejoicing in the Lord and be glad. You're dismissed.